The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Thankful for the freedom, the privilege, and the even God's restraining hand against the virus in our community of faith here that allows us not to have experienced a cluster which would shut us back down and to be together. And I would say this, we give thanks even in the midst of failure to our team, which has literally been working since last night, uh, trying to get this. Um, the website issue up and going, and then they, the website seems to be working, and now the live stream software is, is doing something that it's not supposed to do. And we're in a new world, a new reality. Uh, our church didn't even have this technology five months ago, and so we're learning it, and we're thankful for your appreciation and generosity uh, of encouraging us uh, in all ways. And because uh, thanks, Chris, for pointing out my email. Hopefully somebody else will get another email, but uh, uh, no. Um, God is good to us. One of the ways that he is uh, good to us is he gives us his word. And so this morning, we are going to be reading and continuing our study in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was one of the greatest pastor preachers that you can listen to and hear at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia in the middle part of the last century, preached for 10 years on the book of Romans. I understand why. Because we could take Luke, and it is so rich in the life of Christ, to looking at the beauty of the movements of his life, the deep theological uh, truths that are there. We could spend years and years together on this one gospel. We've determined and decided instead of going that route to be a little broader in our uh, treatment of it. And so this morning we are looking uh, at a broader section, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, and going through chapter 4, verse 13. And we're looking at no small things, the baptism of Jesus, the announcement of his belovedness by the Father, his genealogy, and his temptation in the wilderness, all in 30 minutes or less, which is never less, so 30 minutes or more uh, for us today. But in respect for God's word who is speaking to us today, I invite you to stand as I read this passage of scripture for us. God, would you speak now through your perfect word? Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsley, Elsley, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, 
the son of Mathoth, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Menah, the son of Mathathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amenadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Zerug, son of Jehu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamach, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give this all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. And if you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him and said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until the opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask now that you bless the reading, the hearing, the preaching of your word. Father, would I speak with an unction that comes only from your spirit? Would our hearts be open to hear from you that we have a redeemer in Christ who is greater than any savior that this world could ever produce? May we trust him and follow him today to your glory. Amen. You may be seated. Quite a large passage of Scripture, so much that we could go into uh, in this passage. As you were listening to it and the familiar words of uh, the baptism uh, of Jesus, and then after he had been baptized and was praying and the descent of the Holy Spirit as if a dove coming upon him and the words of the Heavenly Father, you are my beloved, you are my only Son in whom I uh, am well pleased reverberating in our ears and then jumping into that weird section of a genealogy where you were basically wondering if I was going to mess up on a name. And the reality is you don't know and neither do I. Just go quickly. Don't take a breath and, and move through. And what in the world? Why would, why would Luke put a genealogy right in the middle of this powerful passage? It works so much better uh, that he was baptized by John the Baptist, that he was filled fresh by the Holy Spirit, uh, that he was empowered in his humanity in this, this statement by his heavenly Father, you're my son. Now go out into the, the desert and fight the evil one with the temptations there and win that and then get ready 
ready for your public ministry. Why a genealogy in the midst of it? It seems odd. Well, friends, what we're going to look at today is this entire section because Luke was disciplined in how he put these things together. It was specific, and it had a purpose for why these events rolling out as they were between Jesus' baptism, going straight into uh, the, the desert, into the wilderness for the temptations, why he placed the genealogy there, and we're going to see that. There is no way for me today in the moments that we have together uh, to give you all that you need from these passages. So what I want to present to you today uh, is a banquet feast. Uh, I, I visioned this in my mind as I was thinking about this week uh, of, a, of a large table in the banquet hall uh, where there's just food and fruit and beverage all brought out and, and laid across and, and all the beauty and the sensory experience and the taste and, and all the nuances are all there uh, for us. And there's no way uh, that we can do justice to that in this one sitting together. But my invitation for you is to keep coming back to the table. Draw on a little bit of this and sit with it. Taste it. Experience the nuances of what does it mean for Jesus to have been called the beloved of God. Go to another part of the table that will be prepared for you today and, and consider the temptations. What do they mean, which one in particular? Uh, to look at them and to know them and to digest them and to savor them. You see, sadly, the American church so many of us within the church are kind of like me as I approach good food, good coffee, good wine. I have a son who's a coffee roaster, and they roast all this coffee, and he comes and he brings something with him each time, and he pours it, and it takes 20 minutes for a pour over. And I'm like, dude, just give me coffee. And he goes, no, Dad. And he pours it, and he says, now sip it. Do, do you taste the pomegranate in there and the hint of cherry? No, it's coffee. It's different from what I normally have. He goes, yes, because what you have is dirt uh, that you put water over. And then he goes, well, try this one. And he goes, oh, do you taste the earthiness in this? Dad, this is a Mexican coffee, and, and the soil in this particular region of Mexico has more minerals to it, and so the coffee has an earthy taste to it. Do you, do you taste it? I'm like, I want to. We go to a fine restaurant and they prepare something and someone with a refined palate can go, oh, I taste this spice and this spice, or it needs a little more acid or just a little more salt. Or you have a glass of wine and someone says, let it breathe through the bouquet to come open. And you recognize that this came from a region of France or a region of Argentina or, or this place and the nuances are there. And I'm like, ah, it just, it tastes it's good, but I don't get it. It's too much work to figure it out. And so too often within the church today, we approach Scripture that way. There's a banquet laid out for you. And instead of coming and dining on it and trying to develop those senses, trying to see into the beauty, we just run to the fast food and grab a burger, a corn dog, some fries and a drink and go, ah, eh, that filled my belly. Oh, but it didn't satisfy you. 
It didn't do what it was designed to do. And so don't just run here today. Grab a couple of things for uh, self-help. You see, the main point of this sermon is not about what you need in order to be a better follower of Jesus Christ. If you're looking for better ways to deal with temptation, uh, the insights of covenant baptism versus believer baptism, sprinkling versus immersion, uh, a genealogical this, that, and the other, if you're looking for all of these things, they're in here, but that's really not what it's about. This is a section of Scripture which I think outside of the crucifixion of Jesus in the, in the narrative of his life is the most important section of his life. For if there's failure here, there's no success there. If Jesus fails in this place, if he fails in the wilderness, if he falls, if he misses it here, then he misses it ultimately. And if he misses it ultimately, we're missed ultimately. And so we come to this sermon and we look at this passage of Scripture, and this sermon and this passage of Scripture is about the uniqueness of Christ to be our Redeemer and to secure our salvation. That's what it's about. Now, the trimmings on the side are because that is true. Now, how do I deal with temptation? How do I engage in spiritual battle with the enemy? How do I understand uh, the work of the Spirit in baptism and the need of water and of fire and of spirit and all of these things? What's it all about? But friends, today, this feast is about Jesus and who he is. You go, oh, it's just theology again, Bill. I don't want theology. I I want Jesus. Friends, you can't have Jesus without theology. You can't have the practical outworkings of how to live life as a follower of Jesus if you don't understand him and come. And as he would say at the table, if it was laid out, come and dine upon me and see all of my beauty. And so we're going to look at a few things today. I'm not going to give you my full outline because I'm not sure I'll get through my full outline. Today started behind for me. Lisa rolled over and said, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm sorry. Am I snoring? She goes, no, it's 545. I said, I can't be. My alarm goes off at 5. She goes, well, it's 545. I'm like, oh, no. And I feel like I've been behind ever since, and I'm already behind on the sermon. I shouldn't have even told you that because that put me 30 seconds more behind uh, on the sermon. But we're going to look, we're going to look at Jesus the baptized. We're going to look at Jesus the beloved. Jesus the son of Adam. Jesus the tempted. And then taking these four seemingly unconnected parts of who Jesus is and go, what do we learn from it? What are the takeaways for us today? And so Jesus the baptized Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened up. That's all Luke says. (laughs) The baptism of Jesus wasn't that important to Luke in the expanse of what Matthew had talked about. Even Mark gave more verses to it than Luke and John. And he just said Jesus was baptized. And after he was baptized, this event happened. But you have to ask the question, and many of you are asking the right question, and the right question is this. Why did Jesus even have to be baptized? 
You ever wondered that? Why does Jesus have to be baptized? That's a reasonable question to have. And it was the exact same question that John the Baptist had. We learned that from Matthew's account in chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel. It says Jesus came to Galilee and the Jordan to John to be baptized by John, and John would have prevented him. John was like, no, no, no. He said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John was saying, I should be baptized by you. Why would you be baptized by me? John is asking the same question we're asking, but Jesus answered him and said, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Jesus, you see, was not baptized for the forgiveness of sins. So the other people were coming into uh, and to, to John to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, we know, wasn't. And the reason we know that is you take an unclear scripture like this, which doesn't speak to his sinfulness or sinlessness, and you go to other parts of scripture which speak that he who had no sin became sin on a part. We know that Jesus never sinned, that he never crossed God's law. So he didn't come here in order to be forgiven of sin. So there had to be another purpose. So what was the purpose? Interesting, Luke gives us a hint even in how he set it up. Now, when all the people had been baptized, then Jesus came. All the baptisms for the forgiveness of sins had been completed, at least on that day. And Jesus comes. Why? He came really for two purposes. The first was an inaugural purpose, because at the age of 30, if you went back to the Levitical law, that's when the Levites, the priests, uh, were set apart for public ministry, and they were baptized. They were washed, as it were. And Jesus is now stepping in at the age of 30. Luke makes sure we know that he's right at 30, to step into his public ministry as being the chief high priest that he's stepping into his high priestly role. And he's saying, if you want forgiveness for your sins, it doesn't come through baptism anymore. It comes through me. There's not going to be a need any longer uh, for the Holy of Holies. There's not going to be a need any longer for any more priests and high priests because, you see, because I am the true high priest and I've entered into the Holy of Holies, there's now forgiveness for you through me. John baptizes with water, but I baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you see, it's not about the baptism itself per se. So he was identifying himself as the high priest to be set apart to fulfill all righteousness, but he was also identifying himself with sinful humanity. He was saying, I am the high priest, but I'm the high priest who relates to you. And though I'm not being baptized for the forgiveness of my sins, my life, my ministry, my baptism, not John's, my baptism with fire and the Holy Spirit, is the baptism that you need in order for your sins to be forgiven. Some of you sitting here today and some of you watching uh, this morning have been baptized multiple times. Maybe you were baptized as a child and you forgot about it. You were, taught you were a baby and you didn't remember it. And then you had a powerful experience at camp in your teenage years and maybe in college. And so you went and you recommitted your life to Christ and you got baptized again. And then you had a backsliding period. You went through some sinful behavior. You had another experience in your 30s. So, man, I've got to re-get up with God and I've got to do it with God. So, hey, we're here. There's all this water. Why don't we do it? We're going to get baptized again. Jesus would say it's never about the water. It's always about me. Have you been baptized by me and into me, is what Jesus would be saying. Because he's saying this water baptism is important. 
We believe in water baptism as a sign and a seal, as a means of grace of the Holy Spirit. It's an external sign of an inward reality of what God is doing. And by the way, just as a quick aside, if this is your proof text for immersion, you need to find a different proof text. That's all I'll say about that. Well, that's not all I'll say. <laughs> but it's all I'll say today. This isn't about that. Jesus was coming to say, I identify with you as sinful humanity. I identify with you, and I'm going to be your true high priest. And so Jesus finished, and it says, as he came up out of the water, and by the way, I knew I'd say more about this. I was down at the beach with Lisa last night, walked down to the water's edge, stood in the water, and then I went back, came up from the water, and sat with Lisa. That's the language used here. It's not come up from underneath the water, but as he came up from the Jordan and went back to where he had been, because the practice in Judaism was never immersion, but sprinkling and pouring. John wasn't creating something new, but going with the old. And so Jesus coming up was standing now praying to the Father. And we have no idea what he was praying. But he was probably saying something to the effect of Father. In order for me to accomplish what I'm to accomplish, I have to have you. And it says that the heavens were rent asunder, the old King James. It was apocalyptic literature, language. It was all the people who were standing there when John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now the Lamb of God standing there having been baptized. And you see the heavens rent open. And the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descending as if a dove. It doesn't say it was a dove. It was in bodily form as, a, as if it was a dove. The only descriptor they could give was it was a dove. I don't know why they chose dove over sparrow or turkey or eagle. So it looked like a dove. And it came and descended upon him. And simultaneously, a voice from heaven, God's voice, thundered and said, This is my beloved. This is my only son in whom I am well pleased. There was an external and an internal reality that was taking place right there. The external of the Holy Spirit coming, and, or the internal of the Holy Spirit coming and descending and filling Jesus, for it says just later that filled with the Holy Spirit, he went out to battle the enemy. But there was the external, the voice for him to hear in his humanity, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is a movement of the Trinity. The word Trinity isn't found in the Scriptures, but you see it beautifully pictured here because what Jesus was beginning, the inauguration of his ministry at the age of 30 was a recreation of all creation. If you go back and you see the Holy Spirit and the Father and Christ moving in Genesis 1, all three of them were at work to create the perfect, unmarred by sin creation. And now all three are at work again to create a new creation, inaugurated by the work of Jesus, the mediator of all things, the Holy Spirit hovering, as it were, upon the deep and the Father speaking. And you see the beauty of the Trinitarian theology brought together right here for us. And Jesus is there, and he hears this, and the significance of this is that it inaugurates the public ministry of Jesus. And a byproduct of that, friends, is for me and you to hear those words of, you're my beloved, comes through the beloved. 
our deepest need and our deepest desire as humanity is to hear our Heavenly Father say, you are my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. You're my beloved daughter. You're my beloved son. And we get to hear that. Maybe the heavens aren't rent open in this way, but it's as if they were spiritually, that the moment that we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, are baptized by him, filled with his Holy Spirit in our lives, a new creation, it is as if the heavens are rent open. And the Father booms from heaven, Bill McCutcheon, you're my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Oh, what language to the soul. What care. What power that gives to us. Now it would seem reasonable that now Jesus the baptized and Jesus the beloved is ready to go out into the wilderness. And yet John throws this long section of genealogy in the middle of it. Why? I believe it's to remind us of really who Jesus was. Who Jesus is. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Full Godhead, full humanity. Brought together without corruption or confusion, that hypostatic union of bringing together the beauty of Jesus, the second person, the always, never having been created, but always being second person of the Trinity, coming and being born as a human. He brings them together and he says, here, look at Jesus' genealogy. And all you scholars out there would go, Bill, as I was studying this, I noticed that there was a significant difference between the, the, the genealogy of Matthew and the de- genealogy of Luke. And I would say, yes, there are. There's 40 different names given uh, in these. What's the discrepancy? Well, it's an interesting discrepancy, and one that I think is important is because Luke went through Mary's line. Luke went back up through Mary's line and went into a line that ended all the way back in Adam and then ultimately to God. And what you see in this genealogy is Jesus saying, I'm fully human. Because he begins this way. Jesus, when he began his ministry about 30 years, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. Nice. As was supposed of Joseph. How belittling to Joseph? No. What it was saying was Joseph was not his actual father. God was his ultimate father. His humanity came through Mary not through Joseph. And so we work back through that, and you see in this genealogy something fascinating. We live in a day and age where everyone loves genealogies. You go to Ancestry.com. You do a little bit of this test and that. You want to find out where you come from. And my family did the same thing. We were going to Scotland. I'm a McKinsey and a McCutcheon, and we were going to Scotland last fall, and I wanted to know where I came from. And one of my sons did some Ancestry.com stuff and looked back and found out all the good stuff about us. And we come all the way from William the Bruce. Robert the Bruce. William the Bruce. I'm the, I'm the Bruce. Robert the Bruce. You can see how much I really care about all that. It's really cool. It's like, oh, this is awesome. He was in Braveheart. I like, I actually have a famous character in my family. And we like to go back and we see all these important people. No one's genealogy ever goes back to terrible people, it seems. But Jesus' does. It's filled with a murderer and an adulterer and a liar and a stealer. It's filled, if you were to add the women in from Matthews, with a woman, Sarah, who laughed at God, and a woman, Rahab, who was a prostitute. 
And what Jesus is doing in his genealogy is saying, I'm just like you. And I came to redeem all of those folks. I came in, and my genealogy just isn't about Israel. Interesting, his genealogy goes through Israel, past Israel, and into creation itself. And what he's doing in the midst of this is he's saying, I'm the true king. I'm the true David. David was a forefather, but he wasn't the true king. I'm the true king. Solomon, he was a forefather of mine as well, but he wasn't true wisdom. I'm true wisdom. Boaz, oh, the kinsman redeemer with Ruth. What a beautiful story. I'm the true kinsman redeemer, not Boaz. Noah, he got him through on the ark, but I'm the true Noah. I will shelter you and I will care for you and I will keep you alive in the midst of every storm. I'm the true Abraham. And from me sprouts all families that are in. And ultimately, I'm the true Adam because I'm the true son of God. You see, Jesus is fully human, the son of Adam. He's not just a savior for Israel, but his genealogy says that he's a savior for all humanity. He is the true son of God. And again, you're going, yeah, but Bill, that doesn't help me understand why we didn't just go from baptism, belovedness, to battle scene. Here's why. I was literally just talking with somebody yesterday about this, and their comment was this. Yes, Jesus was tempted, but he was Jesus after all. Of course he was going to be able to make it through the temptations. He was God. Have you ever felt that way? It's okay if you have. Luke would say, oh, that's an old heresy called docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. And docetism was built out of a Greek and Roman Gnosticism uh, that basically said this. It said that Jesus was fully God. We believe that he was fully God. But his humanity, it was just more of a phantom humanity. He wasn't really human. And so he wasn't really tempted like anybody else would have been tempted. He wasn't really hungry like other people were hungry. He didn't really weep because, you see, his his humanity was a facade. It was his divinity that was most important. And what Luke is saying is, no, 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 no. He cannot be our Savior. He cannot be our Redeemer. He cannot do what he has set out to accomplish unless he is fully God, fully man. He who understood us all perfectly lived the perfect life as a man, as a human, and did it tested as we have been tested, tried just like we are tried. And he didn't call on his divinity to keep him from sinning. But it says that he grew in wisdom and stature in the Lord. How? He studied the scriptures. He lived under the law. He, he was the perfect human. Now all of us see that and we come now with that knowledge of going, now this perfect God, perfect human man goes into the desert. And I want you to see a few things. If there's Jesus the baptized, Jesus the beloved, Jesus the son of Adam, and now Jesus the tempted. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, I want want you to learn a few things within this. One, see the hand of God's providence at work. Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, was led out into the wilderness. 
Jesus did not sin. It wasn't his disobedience that caused him to enter into a time of trial and of testing. Most often when, the, when we, as humans, as Christians, find ourselves in difficult temptations, we find ourselves being in testing, we find ourselves in difficult situations like a wilderness experience, our first question is, what did I do? What sin have I committed that is causing God to discipline me this way? That is our default. And we start raking through them. We start going through them. And it is so fast. It happens to us that fast. Two refrigerators went down simultaneously in our house on the same day. And my first thought after going, really? Was, okay, I've been giving a tithe. I've been doing this. I've been, what? Okay, I don't see any sin pattern right here, God, that you're punishing me on this. But that's our default. Instead of trusting the hand of providence to say, I take you into places so that I can show myself to you. And sometimes the best way for me to show myself to you is to strip away everything else. Because the place where we see Jesus more real than any place else is in the wilderness. It's in the desert. Because wildernesses and deserts, by their very fact, they do not have the ability to sustain life. Only Christ does. And friends, it's not just silly about a refrigerator like I said. But it can be more profound. When we lost our second child to miscarriage before our first son was born, the questions are deep. God, what did I do? Why are you punishing me this way? And the temptations, just like Christ, were, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Or maybe you're not good instead of coming and as we did to a place of simply saying, God, if we ever have children or don't have children, you're enough. Praise be the name of our Heavenly Father. So friends, I don't want you to think it's flippant about refrigerators. It can be as profound as infertility. It can be cancer. It can be whatever. But your default shouldn't be. We should look inside ourselves to see if there's any sin. If I go and have too much to drink and go drive my car and get a DUI, I can look back and go, God's not trying to test me. I had too much to drink. I got in my car. I got a DUI. A plus B equals C. But there's other places like Jesus walked in full of the Spirit, and he went for a purpose. And his purpose was to reenact something. In your mind, as you've read this, you should go, this reminds me of something. You've, you've seen that in your life before. You see something, you're like, that reminds me of something. And it would have been the same in heaven, I imagine, as all the hosts of heaven were looking down and they're going, oh no, we've seen this before. Like, this looks an awful lot. 40 days, 40 years, desert, people being tempted. Ah, oh, they question God. Jesus is right there. He's back in the wilderness, right where they probably had been. Oh, my, this is crazy. How is he going to do it? And we know that he's going back to the desert experience because all three of his answers to the evil one come from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is in the wilderness experience. And so what Jesus was doing, he was doing a redo, a rerun uh, as, uh, of this Israel in the wilderness. And what he's saying is that where Israel failed, I'll succeed. Where Israel failed and didn't get you to the promised land, I succeed and will get you to the promised land. And then he says this. This rerun isn't just a rerun of Israel in the wilderness. It is a rerun of Adam in the garden. Because the promised land is a picture of Eden. 
And you can't enter into Eden because, you see, there's, there's an angel with a fiery sword that is blocking entrance. And you can't get back in there because Adam failed. Fascinating if you start looking at the first Adam to the second Adam. First Adam, fat and happy, beautiful garden, had everything he wanted, intimacy with God. He was there. He was tested once, and three curses came down on him. Jesus, second Adam, fully man, starving for 40 days, losing more than 50% of his body weight, most likely. They say that you will die normally at day 45 to 60 if you have no food. He was on the throes of death. He was tempted three times and gained all the blessing. He's saying, I'm a better Adam. I'm a better Israel. I can take on the enemy and I can do this for you. If you trust me in this, I'm redoing it. Oh, the hosts of heaven must have been peering over the side going, is he going to make it? There's the enemy. Satan showed back up, and I don't think Satan showed up this way, this time, uh, like a snake. I don't think he showed up like Snow White uh, with an old hag with a little apple and going, you want my apple? I think he showed up like Paul would have described him in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen as an angel of light in all of his extravagance and all of his glory and going, Jesus, look at what I can give you if you'll just bow down. Look at my magnificence and splendor. Look who I am in all of my glory. Don't think that the evil one approaches you only as a snake. He approaches you as beauty. He approaches you in subtlety. He approaches you in the temptations because, you see, the setting in this and the enemy are the same enemy in the setting. We find ourselves in a wilderness now, friends. This human life is a wilderness. We are sojourners. This isn't home. We're outside of Eden. We're struggling. We're looking. We're hungry. We're all of these things. And so I want you to consider these three things real quickly about the temptations. We're not going to go into all the details of the temptations, but I want you to see that these three temptations encapsulate all the temptations that we ever have, and it's to distrust God, to believe in worldliness and presumption. Those are the three temptations. Distrusting God, is God good? Sounds like the argument from the garden. Satan comes to a starving Jesus and goes, what do you mean you can't eat? Just turn these stones to bread. You can eat. What do you mean? Your heavenly father's not good. He doesn't want you to have food. Just do this. You, you can do this. You can distrust God to see if he's good in your life. It's so similar to the first temptation. And Jesus responds with Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, Scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He was saying, I don't need bread. I could do it, but I won't. Uh, so Satan turns. He goes, huh, huh. One thing just real quickly to recognize uh, about Satan here. Satan doesn't try to tempt Jesus with sexual lust here. He tempts him with where he's weakest. Where you're struggling the most in your weakness, that's where the temptation comes. And Satan is so crafty that he tailors temptations. He knows enough to tailor temptations for the places that we're weakest and the things that we think we need most. Jesus responds with Scripture. Then he comes to worldliness. 
And he basically says this, I've been given all the kingdoms of the world, and he had. Now, they were given to him, sort of, in a sense. God still ruled over them, but it said that he's the prince of the power of the air and of the sky and uh, of this kingdom here. He says, I'll give you all of these things, which Jesus was going to get anyway, right? Jesus knew that he was getting all these kingdoms if he went through the cross. All Satan was saying was, I'm going to give them to you, and you don't have to suffer, I'm going to give them to you, but there's no cross. You don't have to go through all the agony of this. Just bend down and confess me, and you get all of these good things. Worldliness is that sense of saying, you want all the good that God is offering to you in this world, but you don't want any of the bad. You don't want any of the suffering. We don't want any of the difficulties that come. We want God We want Jesus. We just don't want his cross. We don't want the fellowship of his sufferings. And so the church has begun to teach over the years, you can have all the benefits of what God is promising you, and you don't have to worry about Jesus. Friends, Jesus came back to Scripture, and he said, no, that's not it. I'm not going to bow down to you because he knew this. If he bowed down, he would gain the same thing that he was going to gain before, but there'd be no forgiveness of sins. He wouldn't have accomplished his mission. And then Satan wises up. He goes, okay, I'm not going ahead on assault uh, with Scripture this way. I'm going to actually quote Scripture to him, and I'm going to show him what Scripture actually teaches. And he goes, hey. And he took him up to the pinnacle of Jerusalem, which was known within uh, the ancient uh, Israeli Uh, Jewish traditions that the Messiah would come and would be on the pinnacle uh, of the temple looking down over the Kidron Valley. 500 feet, they say, is from the temple pinnacle uh, to where he would have landed. He said, throw yourself off because Scripture says this. He was quoting Scripture accurately. That's how bad he is as a deceiver. He used Scripture against Jesus, and he was accurate in it. But Jesus said, what you don't know is you should never tempt the Lord your God. Never put him to the test. And he didn't throw himself off. And it says that Satan fled, never to return again, right? He fled until an opportune time. Friends, we have an enemy who will continue to come and assault and assault and assault. And oftentimes he uses Scripture. And look at Jesus' response. He went back to Scripture and said, no, I know Scripture better than you do. Friends, the church, our church, The American church doesn't know Scripture. No wonder we're falling. We read self-help books and how-to books when we should be reading this book of going, no, 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 this is the truth. And I'm applying this. And here's the thing. In other parts, it says that the angels came and ministered to Jesus. He was tired and he was hungry. And they took care of him. But he won the battle and it says his ministry was inaugurated. Here's where we'll end today with a couple of thoughts at this banquet feast. How many of you need to know that there is a Savior who relates to you in all of your weakness? Would that help you this week? To know that Jesus Christ knows you so intimately that he knows all of your temptations and that he is not appalled by them, shocked by them. That he draws near to the brokenhearted. He draws near to the bruised. He comes to that place going, I was tempted too. I was close. 40 days that we have a Savior who relates to us in our humanity. He relates to us in all that we struggle with. 
that we need to know we have that kind of Savior. And I think that would help you this week to know that. It's already helped me in the preparation of this. Something, a thought came into my mind because sin is this way when you're up on a high part and all of a sudden sin comes in and says, why don't you go do this? And I went, whoa, 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 no. If my Savior can make it through, I can make it through. Thank you for reminding me of my need of the Savior, Satan. And it was gone. He fled because if you resist the devil, he flees from you. And he'll come back. But it was amazing just for me today, I mean, this week, to be able to go, no, if my Savior, my human Savior, Jesus, fully God but fully man, made it through the desert, I can make it through this five-minute temptation. I can do this through your power. Fill me. Remind me who I am. And friends, would it help you this week to know that not only do you have a Savior who relates to you in all of your humanity, but you have a Savior who is fully God and overcomes all of your greatest obstacles and your greatest enemy, Satan. Would that help you this week? Middle section, yes. That section, you're good, huh? Good. You have a Savior who's fully God, who says, I came not just to get you through temptation, but I came to take care of sin and death and the grave. I came to take you where no other Savior could take you. Because when I go to that cross, what happened in the Holy of Holies was there's a tapestry that had all of the holy angels with flaming swords, those ones standing on the other side of Eden. It was ripped from the top down. And Jesus said, now you get to enter in because I'm a better high priest. I'm a better Adam. I'm a better Savior. I'm a better one than any of them. But you have to come unto me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Follow me. So friends, that's the invitation this week is to follow Jesus. It's going to be hard, and I'll say this. We're running along a little bit, but we'll close and sing. My conviction is that the, the American church is in great danger. We are the best resourced church in the entirety of the world, and we're the weakest church in all of the world. We can barely make it through a day in a desert, a week without food, and we start to fall apart. Jesus says the Christian life is tough. But we enter into the suffering. We enter into those places. We enter in and we see that he made it through and we make it through in the sojourn of this life. So friends, yeah, there's beauty and there's glory, but there's also difficulty. So prepare yourself in studying and reading this beautiful book. And then as we enter in together, we find our strength. Not in all the easy times, but when the difficulties come, you have a good Savior a better Savior, an only Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that, he was, that Christ was fully human and therefore able to stand in our place as the perfect sacrifice. Thank you that he was fully uh, God, uh, that he could stand in our place as the perfect sacrifice. Thank you for who he is. And Father, would we remember today that all of this isn't about what he can do for us, but what he has done. Not to make us better people, but to draw us closer to himself. We praise you and we give you glory in Christ's name. Amen.